to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I am Colin Slade. And I'm Reed Gann, and we're your hosts for Commission Ed. Colin, I'm really excited that I get to introduce you to a good friend of mine, uh, Major Michelle Willett, who agreed to talk about the career field of 62E engineer. She's a pretty special person, and I'm really excited to bring this interview to, to the audience today. Yeah, it was such a, a joy to listen to this episode because the 62 Echo Developmental Engineer Career Field is one that I thought that I wanted to go into as I was going through ROTC. And obviously, I didn't get to do that. So it was great to hear her perspective and learn what that career field is involved with. I mean, I wouldn't change anything about my career path, but I know that if I had been a a 62, I think I would have really enjoyed it. Yeah. I also like how she brings to light a side of the military that a lot of people don't know exists. I think we have a traditional idea of what being in the military is, and I think it's very focused on operations. And the sustainment and support and the back end of the stuff, as she describes it, is a huge essential element. And I really think she did a good job of outlining that for everybody. So really excited to bring this to you today. And I think with that, we'll just turn it over to the interview. All right. Today, I'm joined by my friend, Michelle Willett. Michelle, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I have been excited to have you on for a while, ever since we had an episode about how to write bullets. And I mentioned how important it was to find a bullet Jedi master to teach you the ways. Today, audience, you are meeting my bullet Jedi master, Major Michelle Willett, who showed me the ways. So I'm very grateful. I have learned from the best. I have to give credit where credit's due. I've just done what other people have told me to do. I am grateful, as are anyone who I've rated on since. My bullets have improved. And then they went to two-line PRFs, so much yes. for most of that. Hey, but you know what? I'm a better person because of it. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Awesome. Michelle, you're joining us today, not only because you're an amazing human being, but also because you're going to give us a little background about the 6-2-E engineering career field. So before we get into that, I want to know a little bit about you. Where are you from? How did you get to be Major Michelle Willett, engineer extraordinaire? I'm not sure about the engineer extraordinaire part, but I'll at least tell you how I got to be a major Michelle Willett. Fantastic. I am originally from Long Island, New York, a little town about 30 minutes drive east of New York City. So that's where I grew up. Did not come from a military family. Not even my grandparents were in the military. So I'm, I'm the first one of my family to join the military was always interested in space and aviation. Started with aviation when I was little and then developed into an interest in space over time. And my earliest memories, like maybe three, three years old, around that time, I always knew I wanted to work with planes, be a pilot. 
be an engineer, do something like that. I've got a lot of stories from family members about silly things I used to do in, in that regard. So I grew up wanting to be an astronaut like so many other people we know. But unlike some people who said they were going to be an astronaut, who said they wanted to be an astronaut when they grew up, I was going to do it. Like That was my mindset at a very early age. It was something I was going to do, and there was really no question about it. And I just went through my childhood with that attitude. Spoiler alert, I'm not an astronaut, and I'm not going to be one. Are you, are you sure? Because the window is not closed. I am positive okay. for a variety of reasons. Okay, that's totally fair. Something we're interested in and we talk a little bit about is the importance of I don't want to say good PR, but good PR that either the Air Force does or NASA. We talk about how Top Gun was a fantastic recruiting tool for the Air Force because pilots. Was there anything in particular that you could point to and say that solidified for me? Or was it like just since you can remember, this has always been part of who you are? Let's see. When I first became seriously interested in that particular career path, I did a little bit of research, I guess you'd call it as much as you can do at that age in elementary school or wherever. And I tried to figure out, okay, what do you do to become an astronaut? Who becomes astronauts? Mm -hmm. And I found that the vast majority, especially early on in the Mercury days and so on, they were all pilots and they were all test pilots or fighter pilots, the best of the best, even within pilots, they were the best pilots. And I think I probably did a quantitative search of how many were Air Force Vice Navy pilots and somehow, or Naval Aviators, excuse me. Yeah. And somehow I got in my head that I was going to join the Air Force. So I, I don't know exactly. I don't remember the day that I made that decision, but somewhere along the lines, I decided Air Force. And then also I was going to go to the Air Force Academy. That was my plan. Okay. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me at all. I can absolutely see the list left and right as you go through that. That's awesome. So did you attend the Air Force Academy or did you, you commission through ROTC, correct? I did commission through ROTC. I did not attend the Air Force Academy. Is this a sensitive subject we should avoid or should we explore this? No, we should talk about it. Yep. It's just that there's a silly response when I was doing my research or whatever you want to call it at that age. I remember going to the Air Force Academy admissions website and reading something about how cadets don't have a summer vacation. And I was like, oh, I can't do that. I can't handle that. And, and I think then I started hearing about ROTC. But I think that was the one thing that was like, probably not for me. That's totally valid. And it's something we talk a lot about on this podcast is being able to assess self and know who you are well enough to know where your limits are. Hindsight's 2020. We can all say, oh, I probably could have done that, but it's hard to know. So it's always hard to question the path if you've ended up at the destination where you intended to be, right? Yeah. And I'm one of those people. My career and schooling took turns that I did not anticipate. And I feel like I'm a better person because of that. Yeah, that's outstanding. So where did you attend school? What debt were you in? So I am a proud graduate of Debt 550, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in upstate New York. And I guess I should tell you about my process of getting into ROTC. Yeah, please. Absolutely. Okay. With the spoiler alert, how I'm not an astronaut and I'm not going to be. Well, so I said I wanted to do that and 
most astronauts were pilots and the best pilots were test pilots. And to be a test pilot, you should really be an engineer. So I was planning on going to school for engineering. And then at some point in high school, I realized that I'm not very good at math. Ooh, okay. Now I was still in like uh, advanced classes or whatever, but math never came easy to me. It still does not come easy to me. I can get by, but I am not a gifted mathematician or anything uh, like that. And I struggled in in high school. Okay. That's actually what turned me away from engineering in college was calculus one. The amount of effort I had to put in to get a C in calculus one made me certain that I was not going to be successful as an engineer. So, but you're still an engineer. You still went to school and got an engineering degree. Yeah. So in high school, once I realized I was bad at math, I had this existential crisis. Uh, oh my gosh, everything I ever wanted to do is falling apart now. Am I going to go to school for engineering or should I actually go to school for something that I'm good at? And it, it turns out I'm, I'm a pretty good musician and singing and that sort of thing comes very easily to me. So I had a lot of mentors and teachers in high school telling me, no, why don't you go to school for something you're good at? But also, in doing that soul-searching, having an existential crisis, I thought back to, well, why do I actually want to do this? Is it just for the job? Because I'll tell you, initially, I, I was interested in joining the Air Force to have a cool job. Yeah. Uh, and I know on your show, you've talked a lot about reasons why and how your reason why can change. And so I thought back to when I was in eighth grade, I guess I was... 13, 14, whatever age I was at that time. And my dad used to work in the World Trade Center. So we were very much personally affected by 9-11 and Mm -hmm. the aftermath of that. So my dad wasn't in the Trade Center at the time, but our community was deeply impacted. And I remember being moved by the amount of patriotism and just the feeling in the community and around the country really after that, how everyone came together for a common cause. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want to be a part of that. And that's what solidified my decision to do ROTC and not go to school for music performance. Yeah. Your experience is not unique. That's going to be a significant historical event in a lot of people's lives precisely for that. So you made the decision, you go to school, and they said, we're not going to give you a scholarship unless you'd be an engineer. Or how did, how did that work? Yeah. So I think while I was having the existential crisis, I had already applied for engineering schools. And I, I got into all the schools I applied for. I probably just barely got in, but, but I got in. And I decided to go to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, RPI. Okay. Not RIT, not Rochester. Everyone gets them confused, but it's a little <laughs> engineering school. I went there on a ROTC scholarship. I, I got a, a scholarship for engineering. Outstanding. And I, I loved ROTC, but I did not like the academics in college. And my freshman year, it got to a point where I was in danger of losing my scholarship because of my grades. And I talked to the leadership at the, in the detachment and they said, you can change your major, but you have to change it to engineering because the Air Force is paying for you to go to school for engineering you're going to be an engineer. So I looked at the course catalog, the booklet for school, and I turned to engineering and I found the degree that had the fewest calculus classes. Okay. And that was industrial engineering. So I switched my major from aerospace engineering to industrial engineering. 
for the sole purpose of taking fewer math classes. And so I graduated with a degree in industrial and management engineering and have not used my engineering skills very much as an engineer in the United States Air Force. Yeah. And I say that with a smile on my face because I certainly use the skills I learned as an engineer. Engineers, besides learning all the math and that stuff, like we learn how to think critically about complex problems and how to break those problems down and that sort of thing. And I use those skills all the time. But I will tell you my 10 years in the Air Force, I have never done calculus. And I've done more math when I've been working with money than with anything engineering E. Yeah. I think that's important to realize. And it's just my personal experience. I can't speak for everyone, but that's how it's been for me. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to getting into some of the career nuts and bolts. Uh, but before we leave college days, give us a fun memory from ROTC. I think sometimes our podcast is a little serious and the Air Force is serious and me, I'm a very serious person, but I, I feel like you've got a good story. Do you have a good story for ROTC you'd like to share? I loved our ROTC and the detachment is the reason I graduated college. If I wasn't an ROTC, I would have left and changed my major and done something else. Being an ROTC is like being in a, another family, being in a fraternity or sorority, but it was just great. And I happened to be in a very small detachment. And I think be, that was great for me. Uh, and, and because of that, I got some opportunities that I wouldn't have gotten in a larger detachment, and certainly not if I had gone to the Air Force Academy. And so thinking back to a funny story, I got to command our cadet wing when I was a senior. I was cadet colonel, and I got to wear that rank and walk around campus. And on our campus, we had all the other ROTCs. We had Army ROTC, Navy ROTC. And so we used to render customs and courtesies to each other like we were in the service already. And your listeners don't know what I look like, but I will tell you, I am 4'11 and three quarters on a good day, 110 pounds. And I barely looked like a freshman when I was a senior. I still could pass for a college freshman. And everyone used to hate walking around campus on days when we wore uniforms because people would accidentally blow me off with their salutes because they couldn't see me because I was like behind people. Or they see me from a distance and I look so small and it's not until you see the rank that they realize I was a cadet colonel. So there were a lot of funny stories associated with uh, trying to salute me or that sort of thing. And we had fun with it. Yeah. And I, I bet when we get talking a little bit more about your career, did that happen at OTS? So we should say for our audience, Michelle and I met as instructors at officer training school, which not too dissimilar from your ROTC experience. Part of what we do is reinforce standards, teaching how the Air Force works to include the rendering of customs and courtesies, all those kinds of things. I'm 5'8", 160, and I still got mistaken for cadets. Did that happen to you ever? Were you mistaken for a cadet? To be honest with you, when I first reported into OTS, I was afraid and I didn't know physically where to go, what room to, to go do that sort of thing. And I thought for sure I was going to be mistaken for a cadet or an OTE at the time because I looked like I didn't know what I was doing. But for the life of me right now, I cannot think of a time when I got mistaken for a cadet. Wow. I, I don't really know why because I'm tiny, but maybe I was just that intimidating. I, I don't know. Yes, I can absolutely testify. Michelle has a presence. <laughs> 
despite your diminutive stature, you absolutely have a presence. So I'll just take that as a point that I need to work on. I need to establish more presence. <laughs> <laughs> That's outstanding. Okay, commission, second lieutenant, where is your first duty station? Where did the Air Force send you? You became an engineer, right? They, they commissioned you as a 6-2-E. Yes, uh, they commissioned me as a 6-2-E. G is my shred out for a pro- project engineer or general engineer. And I wanted to be a pilot. I also said I'm 5'11". So there's waivers for a lot of things, but you can't waiver me. I'm like beyond waverable. And when I realized I could fly, I decided, well, I'm, what's the next best, best thing for me? I want to do space operations. So when I put my dream sheet together with my jobs, I put space operations and a bunch of other things. I did not list developmental engineer. Okay. And I was very disappointed when the Air Force decided to make me a developmental engineer. Newsflash, if the Air Force is paying for you to go to school for engineering, you're going to be an engineer in the Air Force. Like that's, that's kind of how it works. Didn't get the job I wanted. And then I thought for sure, if I put all the space bases on my dream sheet, I'll at least be able to be an engineer on a space system or something like that. Because that's not too uncommon. I was a chemist in my earlier days, stationed at Patrick Air Force Base, home of the 45th Space Wing and Air Station Canaveral, where they do a lot of space launches. And most of the people there were engineers of one flavor or another working on space systems. So it's not too uncommon to be an engineer working in space and things like that. But just like how I didn't get uh, a job that was on the list, I got a base that was not on my list. And I was assigned to Edwards Air Force Base in the Mojave Desert of California. But it's not all bad. They do some neat things out at Edwards. Oh, absolutely. After I got over the disappointment, I thought back to all the cool astronaut flavored movies, like the right stuff, like all that stuff happened at Edwards Air Force Base. It really is the flight test mecca of of the country. Awesome. So before we go too much in depth on the rest of your career progression and things that happened, Mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit more about engineering broadly. So what is the career field? Who was the primary customer? What is it that you do? My answer is going to be the classic AETC. It depends because it does depend on what you're doing. But very generally, the Air Force mission is to fly, fight, win airspace and cyberspace. And in order to do that, we need tools and weapons and systems. We need stuff, right, to accomplish that mission. And wherever there is that stuff, there's also an engineer that is responsible for getting that stuff to the warfighter and uh, making sure it is what we need and that we're being good stewards of taxpayer uh, resources when we purchase that thing or whatever it might be. And engineers work with acquisition programs, acquisition in this case being the buying of of a system, a tool, material, whatever it is. Engineers are found at every part of the acquisition life cycle, and we are responsible for taking systems from their inception when we first realize that there's a need for some sort of uh, weapon system or other system, and testing that system, developing that system, sustaining throughout its life cycle, and then disposing of it at the end, whether that be like demilitarizing it or something else. So... What is tech school like for engineers? I think I know the answer, but let's hear it from the expert. 
Again, I'm not sure I'm an expert, but engineering in general is a career field that is very different from many others in the Air Force for a number of reasons. One reason is we don't really have a, a classic tech school. We have a short course taught at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base called Fundamentals of Acquisition Management. It is a Defense Acquisition University course, and DAU is the organization that teaches the APDP, which is the Acquisition Professional Development Program. So those are all the courses that acquisition professionals are required to take and DAU is the organization that does that certification and training for us. And a lot of times you'll hear people throw around DAWIA or DAWIA. I've heard both. Mm-hmm. That stands for Defense Acquisition Workforce Improvement Act. It was a law passed in the early 90s saying, hey, everyone in the DOD, whether you're military or civilian, to make sure that we are being good stewards of taxpayer resources, these are the courses that you need to take. Or it basically formalized a set of education and training requirements for all people working acquisitions. So anyway, our our tech school is the first of many courses that you'll have to take over your career. But unlike some of the other tech schools, you don't necessarily have to take this before you start working. It certainly helps. But I went to FAM about four months after I reported to my first duty station. Okay. Yeah. So as a former acquisitions professional, chemistry also falls under that umbrella. I also went to FAM there in in Ohio. I think it was three weeks at the time in residence course. Wasn't too cosmic, to be honest. But yeah, I think that's a good way of describing it. Instead of these very discrete periods of training and objectives, it seems like yours is more of a continual learning model. That It's more of a hey, it's now time for you to take the next course in training. It just continues. Is that a fair description or am I shortcutting it? Yeah, I think it is. I think every career field, I'm sure, has some level of continuous learning that has to happen. But for us, our certifications are are definitely like that. Yeah. Awesome. So you got to Edwards and what project or program did they put you on? What did you get to play with when you're out there in the desert? So I got to be a flight test engineer on the F-35 Drone Strike Fighter program, which was awesome. I don't even know where to start. It was such an amazing experience. Yeah. So you went from being a cadet struggling with math, you already owned that, to being a flight test engineer at the mecca of flight testing, Edwards Air Force Base, where, I don't know, a few things happened, like the sound barrier was broken, the SR-71 was developed, and the list could go on. That's got to be pretty neat to be working on the next generation of fighter aircraft. Oh, yeah. I got to be part of so many program firsts, not because I was special or good or anything like that, just because I was in the right place at the right time. So this was right at the beginning of the test program. I was there when we did the first hookups to the KC-10, the first time we dropped weapons, the first time we got the jet to its max loading. I was there for all of that. And it's a slight exaggeration, but it's not too far. I like to tell people that my first job in the Air Force was telling test pilots how to fly their jets. That's what I did. That's outstanding. And something we talk about all the time is these opportunities are going to come. And when they do, the measure of a person is what they do when that opportunity presents itself. And it's a testament to you and who you are as a person and an officer that when the pitch came, you didn't blink, you swung hard and it connected because 
look at you today, right? You're doing fantastic things for the Air Force still. And we don't tend to keep people if they're total wastes of, of space. Yeah, when I got there, I was shocked. Once I realized what the job was, I was like, oh my gosh, how could I possibly do this? And flight testing on, on the, the bigger programs, especially early in the test programs, the jets are fully telemetered and we send all of the data coming off the aircraft to a control room. So think of like your classic Apollo, NASA control room, that sort of thing, where there's all those engineers and there's a guy in the back of the room calling the shots and telling people what to do and and communicating to the astronauts. That's a more glorified version of, of what we did. And I was a person in the back of the room calling the shots. And I had no aerospace engineering experience. I had no flying experience except for a Civil Air Patrol flight, I think, when I was in ROTC. Mm-hmm. But I had to learn pilot lingo because I had to, on the radio, tell pilots how to step through the various flight test maneuvers. And I had a room full of experts on all the aircraft subsystems. And as we were going through the tests, they would relay to me how things looked. And if there was an emergency together, we would walk the pilot through all that. Because at the time, we really needed the system experts to work through it. That sounds pretty intimidating for a brand new lieutenant. Oh, absolutely. Especially when the pilots are the best in the world. And not only are they great pilots, but they're brilliant engineers. And I was just me. Man, that's got to be satisfying, though, to leave a room like that after a successful test. That's got to be pretty affirming as an experience. Yeah, it, it was awesome. I definitely got a lot of confidence doing that job. I learned how to speak the lingo, and I, I felt like I could hold my own with some of the pilots. Yeah, I was on top of the world. And then I think this is a common theme for many of us in the Air Force when I felt like I was at the top of my game and actually being a productive member of the squadron and in a leadership position and all of that, I got pulled up to be an executive officer. Yeah. So for those who don't know, why don't you give just a quick elevator speech of what it means to be an exec? Oh boy. Okay. Bringing back memories. At all the levels of command, uh, squadron, group, wing, and beyond, Commanders are busy people and they need help with some administrative stuff and they really just need, and I don't even know, I don't even know how to start. So an executive officer is essentially an assistant to a commander. In my case, I was the assistant to the operations group commander and I had a wide range of duties, but I ran the front office staff. We had a couple secretaries and admin people. So I was in charge of that group. And the ops group commander had a number of deputy commanders. And so we made sure that all the taskings that came down from higher headquarters were accomplished. We helped, I say we because there were two executive officers. Usually a group exec is a captain. We were both senior first lieutenants. So I guess two lieutenants equals a captain. Maybe. <laughs> uh, so we ran the office. We did all the admin stuff. We also worked awards, decorations, evaluations, all of the paperwork that comes through the front office. We did that so that the commander could spend time commanding and making those decisions. Yeah, because it's not a, it's not a little bit of paper. Oh, no. And we were huge. We were, this was the 412th operations group. We had 12 squadrons or something like that. It was big. And we also had all the safety stuff. 
associated with the test program. So instead of just doing regular taskings, we also had to have the commanders sign off on the safety packages that went into the test programs. So basically a plan of how you're going to stay safe while you do your flight testing. Yeah. And it's a lot. Big responsibility. They don't just pick anybody to go be an exec. No, they don't. And there's good reason for that, as, as you well know. While you're an exec, sometimes you're involved in those decisions that the group commanders make. But more often than not, you're on the periphery and you just happen to be in the office while you hear them talking about making those decisions. Or a big thing was working evaluations. I got to see hundreds of people's records and I got to see people's UIFs, unfavorable information files. I got to see LORs given to people and Article 15s, that sort of thing. And so you need a special person or a person that is very trustworthy because they're going to be seeing things that uh, need to be close held. And uh, you don't want to put that responsibility on someone that you can't trust. Yeah, absolutely. And, And something we've talked about often on this podcast as well is you as a human being, physical, corporeal, are not being evaluated. Your paperwork is. A promotion board is not looking at you to evaluate you for promotion to the next grade. They're looking at your paperwork. And so it's really important that we take care of the paperwork because that's what's getting evaluated for promotion, special opportunities, all those kinds of things that are really life-changing and important for the member. We have to get that right. Yeah. And the paperwork is important. We want people to be able to concentrate on the mission. And so that's one reason why you have your execs to spend the time on that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So the time comes for you to leave the great Edwards Air Force Base and all the amazing tests and engineering things. So this is when you got sent to OTS. Walk us through how you found out, thought process, feelings. The audience knows my experience. I've gone through that in depth. I revealed how I was looking for work. As soon as I got that notification, because I did not have too many positive memories of that experience being a cadet product of OTS, yet I was torn because I also felt that a lot of good could happen there. So walk us through that. So as I was finishing that group exec tour, I definitely had a chip on my shoulder, I guess you could say, because I thought, hey, I worked really hard this past year. I had crazy hours. I came in uh, a number of weekends. Like It, it was tough. I, I did my time and I felt like I had earned a good assignment. And I had this thought in my head that being exec was a little bit of a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours with the group commander. That if I did a good job for him, he would call in a favor and I would get a, a good assignment after that. And sometimes that happens, but it's naive to think that's the way things are supposed to be. So I was actually at Edwards on a four-year tour. I wasn't supposed to move until year four, but at year three and a half, I was told that I was going on the VML, the vulnerable mover list, because they didn't have enough captains in my career field moving that cycle. So they took the most senior first lieutenants and said, hey, you're going to move early. I said, great. I don't like being an exec anyway. Get me the heck out of here. I couldn't wait. I was like counting down the days until I was done execing. Yeah. And so I was shocked when I got non-vault for a position at OTS. And there was a negative stigma associated with getting instructor duty. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if this happened to you, but for me, I was told like, who did you piss off? 
I thought you were a good officer. What did you do? You're in trouble now. Absolutely. And especially coupled with being an exec, it was like, oh, you must have been a really bad exec for you to get non-vol to OTS. And it turns out, now I understand why they chose me. The assignment team does put thought into who's going to what job. It's not random, like some people might think. But on my airman development plan, my ADP, my boss wrote that I would be a good instructor one day because I'm a good communicator, which I don't think is untrue. And I was a decent instructor, but I wasn't expecting to be an instructor for that next assignment. But anyway, when I got the assignment, I marched into the the commander's office and I was like, hey, are we going to turn this off, sir? Are you going to do something about this? And he said, absolutely not. This is going to be good for you. You need to bloom where you're planted. And so off I went to Maxwell. Wow. That's a long drive with your thoughts. Yes. And I was a ROTC product, like I said earlier. And until going to OTS, I had looked down on OTS graduates. I'll be honest with that because I spent four years preparing to be an officer. So how could you possibly become an officer in 12 weeks like that or nine weeks, which is what it was when I started as an instructor? How is that possible? Yeah. So let's talk about your OTS experience a little bit. So this is considered outside the career field, right? This is not normal for an engineer, but it's at the same time, what's normal? And I think we'll talk about that a little bit after, but tell us how that assignment really went for you. So when I got to OTS, I I think it was just a combination of people that were there at the time. But some of the folks that I met initially said the the same type of thing. Like they the when they met me, they were like, oh, did you get non-volved? Oh, you were non-volved too? Or what did you do to get here? So there were actual instructors, not in my squadron, but elsewhere, that greeted me with that negative stereotype. And it took a couple weeks for me to feel comfortable with the idea of having that job. And it wasn't until I started our, I think the initial qualification training course, when we were learning how to be OTS instructors, that it clicked in my head that this is going to be an amazing experience and I'm going to be a better officer because of it. And I'm also going to have a lot of fun in the process. Yeah. Outstanding. I did go in depth on one of our episodes about what it's like to be an OTS instructor. And I get asked all the time, what did you think of that assignment? And it's an extremely challenging question to answer. It's one of those things that was really hard. The hours were brutal. It took a lot of me to do it well, but watching my cadets, now lieutenants, march across the parade field and have confidence that they're gonna go out and do great things for the Air Force was one of those feelings that only those who have had the privilege to do it can understand it. I saw you smile as I was describing that situation, right? Like it's hard to pin down. And for any of our audience who's thinking about being an instructor, either ROTC or even ACSC or anything like that, highly recommend exploring that option. It was one of the most significant assignments I had that I didn't want. And, and the duality of that feeling is still very present. Yeah, I showed up to OTS kicking and screaming And I left kicking and screaming because I didn't want to leave. It was a phenomenal experience for me. And during the drive, the long drive from California to Alabama, I was thinking, I did all this cool stuff with F-35. There's no way that anything in my career will ever top that. And I will tell you, working at OTS was uh, worlds more rewarding to me than working on the F-35 program. 
just because of the level of impact that I got to have on the Air Force and its future. I was in my element helping other people to be successful of leadership training and that sort of thing. I was really happy to be there. And it was very challenging in a good way for me because I have always struggled in the self-confidence department. And when you are a brand new captain responsible for a flight of 15 cadets, two thirds of which are prior enlisted and two are master sergeants who have been around the block a couple more times than you have, it requires a certain level of confidence to be a leader and teach people what it takes to be an officer in the Air Force. And it was hard to wrap my mind around the fact that, all right, maybe these people, they have significantly more experience than me, but none of them have been officers before. And you know what I have, and I don't know everything there is to be about being an officer, but I know what it takes to at least start to be one. Yeah. It's shocking how much I look back on my time as an instructor more than I look back on my first assignment as an Intel officer or my first assignment doing acquisitions. I think back on that one a lot more. And I too, like you, I think I joined the Air Force for the stuff I was going to get to do, but I have found much more reward in being associated with the people and having the opportunity to help maybe mold and grow some of those folks is pretty rewarding. Right. Being at OTS taught me more about what it means to be in the Air Force because I got to work with people from all different career fields. Engineers tend to work with the same people over and over again. And it's very rare for us to work with security forces and personnelists, that sort of thing. And those people were all peers of mine. And so I also learned peer leadership because after I was an instructor, I got to be a student squadron commander, which is essentially a supervisor of other instructors. And we were all captains, so it was like supervising your friends, which is a very unique leadership challenge. And then I also got to work in the training support squadron that they have down there. And I got to be an ADO, an assistant director of operations. And I got experience leading and supervising enlisted personnel. Uh, And that is critical for us as engineers, as developmental engineers and and acquisition professionals in general in the Air Force, because it is very rare for us to have the opportunity to actually supervise enlisted until later on in your career. And it's not uncommon for people to become squadron commanders or the engineer equivalent material leaders, and that being their first opportunity supervising enlisted. And I don't want to be put in that position. I feel like you should understand how to do that before you're a commander. So I I got to have that experience at OTS. Yeah, that's one of the challenges about the acquisitions career fields. There aren't exactly enlisted chemists. And it's not that they couldn't do it. It's just that the service isn't built that way. They're relying on your expertise and experience to manage those that are in the civilian world and to make sure that defense contractors are doing the things that the Air Force needs. You're like a translator instead of leading the troops, if you will. Yeah. I think in general, it's tough to be a new developmental engineer when you leave your commissioning source because very uh, much of the standard advice that people are given, uh, like find an NCO or make sure that you're reaching out to other squadrons or whatever it might be, At my first duty station, there were no enlisted personnel in my squadron, like zero. So how am I going to find that senior NCO to stick with if there are none in the squadron? How do I do that? And at OTS, we talk all about 
being a leader and doing that initial feedback and all the stuff you do when you take command of, of a group, how you set your expectations. And then I get on active duty and there are no people to set expectations for because I'm not supervising anyone. And I didn't supervise anyone for many years. So th there were times when I thought, and I have peers that truly believe, well, if I'm not supervising people and there are no enlisted personnel in my squadron am I even really being a leader why am I an officer when I worked F-35 I had peers that worked for the prime contractor doing the same job I was doing we did the same thing day in day out but they got paid a whole lot more and didn't wear a uniform and didn't have to PT in the morning and all those kinds Absolutely. of things right yeah maybe a question like why am I even an officer like I don't feel like an officer and so advice to people becoming developmental engineers or acquisition managers, six twos and six threes in the in the Air Force, you are you are an officer. You are a leader. And even if you're not supervising, even if you're the low man on the totem pole, right? You are still a leader. We just have to work a little bit harder to bring it to fruition. Yeah. Well I think that's totally fair. Something that's interesting about having these different tribes, right? You've got your pilots, you've got your intel people, you've got your engineers, you've got your whatever, an enlisted member doesn't see your functional badge and say, oh, that officer has never supervised any enlisted and they've always worked in civilian organizations and they've never supervised anybody. So I don't need to take them seriously, even though they're wearing the captain rank or the major rank. All they see is the rank and the uniform and they have an expectation of you. And that expectation is that you're going to be a leader. And not only that, but we talked about this in our episode on discipline, the way we portray ourselves, the way we carry ourselves communicates to our civilian counterparts as well, that we're serious professionals and we're there to work for them. Absolutely. My career field doesn't deploy nearly as frequently as many of the other career fields. That's not to say that it doesn't happen, but it doesn't happen as frequently because usually those systems that need engineering, they're at home, or if there's a problem with them, they're going to be sent home anyway. So I spend most of my time sitting at a desk in front of a computer. And when you do that, it is a little bit harder to feel like you uh, are answering your nation's call, but you certainly are. You just need to take a step back and look at it from a different perspective. And I use the same argument when you're writing an OPR bullet and you're trying to find that impact. If I was an executive officer, all I did was paperwork. What's the impact? How do I find the impact statement? You have to take a step back and be a little bit creative when you look at what that impact actually is, right? The same could be said for acquisition officers and developmental engineers in the Air Force. No, that's awesome. I, I really appreciate it. So you left Maxwell after an incredible experience. You were a group exec again there. We'll just move right past that because I'm sure you're over it. But that's where you trained me to be an exec and taught me in the ways of bullet writing, which I'm forever grateful for. So I don't need to talk that much more about being an exec because twice was two more times than I needed to do. But I do want to say that the exec experience, having done it twice, both at the same level, it's different every time. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was a much better experience for me the second time around for two reasons. One, because I had a better attitude going in. I wasn't upset about being plucked out of my happy place and being put into a different position. And two, I think it was personality driven. I think I just got along with uh, that second group commander a whole lot more. And I think because of that, and also because I was a little bit more mature at the time, instead of being an observer in 
group politics and decision making, I felt like I was more like a contributor and an active participant. And I got to have some really deep conversations with that particular colonel that really taught me uh, a lot about what it means to command and the challenges therein. Yeah, I also another job I wouldn't wish on anybody, but I wouldn't take away that experience mm-hmm. to be an exec and see those things. I totally concur. So you left Maxwell. Uh, now you're in the NCR doing awesome space system stuff. Any other things you want to talk about when it comes to like career progression, big milestones for engineers, things they need to be paying attention to if they want to have a quote successful career? Our career field does have, I guess they prescribed normal career progression. But if you ask any of us, we will tell you that there is no such thing. I've been in the Air Force for 10 years. I've done three assignments and each assignment has been in a different major command. Uh, And each assignment has had nothing to do with the assignment previous to that or any other assignment. And sometimes I think to myself, what am I going to do? What value am I bringing to the Air Force? Why are they going to promote me if I've been bounced around and turned into a jack of all trades, but master of none? Uh And that's far from, from the truth. I think generally speaking, engineers start out their first couple of assignments trying to get a a broad picture of the various aspects of the acquisition process and that acquisition life cycle that I mentioned earlier. There's lots of different places where engineers can work. We can work in the lab doing your standard research and development stuff, actually doing the math and actually designing the widget and machining the widget. Those opportunities are few and far between, but they're there. We can work in system program offices and product centers. These are places where we are in charge of those systems in development and seeing those systems through their life cycle. We can work at test centers, which is what I did at the beginning of my assignments. So in the beginning of your career, you start one thing and then your next assignment will be somewhere completely unrelated. We try to give you that broad picture. And in there, in your first two or three assignments, we like you to do career broadening, and that would be doing something that's clearly outside of your career field like I did as an instructor. But there are also broadening opportunities for you to do things that are not quite as far away from engineering. Like you can get picked up to go do space operations for a tour or do intelligence for a tour and then come back with that information to the career field and continue your engineering job. Hopefully you'll go to school, do your IDE in there at some point. When you're a little bit more senior to where I am, you'll have a staff job, just like many of the other career fields, to get that experience working policy and and in higher headquarters, making those decisions that impact what systems get bought by the Air Force and what we spend our money on and why. And being in those staff positions give you insight into the budget process, the budget cycle, and money is very complicated. And having that insight is uh, super helpful for when you become a material leader, which is our squadron commander equivalent. Material spelled the IEL way, the French way. So material leaders, that's the position that the vast majority of acquisition officers, 6-2s and 6-3s in this case, aspire to be. When you've achieved a certain level of uh, expertise in uh, program management, the understanding of the the budget process, and when you have a broad understanding of systems engineering as a whole, then you have the experience necessary to 
be in charge of a system program office or some other major system acquisition. And so instead of commanding a squadron, they will command an organization that creates that widget or is responsible for the widget, that sort of thing. And it's command equivalent because material leaders are not on G-series orders. So that's not to say that the, the challenges that a material leader faces are less significant. The challenges are different. You're dealing more with the civilian workforce. You're dealing more with money and having to bring concerns up to Congress or that sort of thing, as opposed to disciplining your airmen. And it, it does happen, but it's not in the context of G-series orders. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. The things that an officer is evaluated against, leading airmen, accomplishing the mission, managing resources, and leaving the unit better than they found it. Those same rules apply whether you're leading a, a large organization accomplishing material acquisition and management of a system as it is if you are leading a flight of F-15s into battle. The same leadership skills, it's just applied in a different fashion. So that's like the stereotypical career path. You're now a major. What's up next for you? We've got all sorts of moving things. We've got Space Force happening. Are you going to go to school next? What's up next for Major Willett? I'm hoping to go to school in the next couple of years, but either way, what's next for me is probably one of those staff positions that I mentioned earlier. And I, I recently moved from uh, my engineering job where I was working on satellite ground systems to a, a job in uh, my organization's office of policy and strategy. And so you mentioned Space Force. We are right in the middle of working all the policy and strategy issues associated with standing up a new service branch. And there is a lot of policy and strategy associated with how do we put policies and and plans in place that are going to allow us to be most effective with our resources and our concepts of operation and that sort of thing. And how do we get the taxpayers and the other services and our allies and our adversaries on the same page about what's important to us in the fight. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a really good description of the challenges of policy. I'm working in policy position right now, so I can empathize. So before we started recording, you mentioned that there are a number of truisms that you've experienced and been told over the years that you wanted to discuss. The first one, bloom where you're planted. The Air Force is constantly going to be moving you into positions that you think you are not qualified for, that you think you have no experience in, and you'll constantly be questioning yourself about whether or not you're up to the task. And I think I'm a great example of that because I went to school to be an engineer in the Air Force, but I'm I'm not really doing engineering per se because it's more like engineering management and translating techno babble into regular people speak. But there's a reason for it, right? If the Air Force just needed engineers, they would hire civilian engineers. We have plenty of them. But at the end of the day, there needs to be an officer that takes on the responsibility inherent in, in that position. I think that's really what being an officer is about. It's like taking, being that person that is willing to take responsibility and hold themselves accountable for the successes and sometimes the failings of the people that work for them and and their organization. 
And so bloom your, where you're planted, you're going to be put in these uncomfortable positions. And it's part of your duty as an officer to figure out how to make that work for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great rundown and a description of that perspective, that attitude, that way of being that bloom where you're planted encapsulates. I could have very well, when I showed up to OTS, just folded and just said, I don't want to be here and just been sour and miserable. And we saw those instructors. You and I saw them. They were there. Yes. But that's not the organization I joined to be a part of. And I think that idea, you'll hear it, like you said, from the day you commission until the day you're out, bloom where you're planted. What are some other ones that you think are, are worth discussing? Flexibility is the key to air power. I roll my eyes every time someone says that, but it is so true that in order to be successful in your job, just like in order to be successful in the Air Force, like for the Air Force to be successful in its mission, we need to be flexible. Flexible means thinking outside of the box. Flexible means uh, not being comfortable, forcing yourself to be uncomfortable and do things that might go against the grain. It might mean respectfully speaking up to your superiors and saying, hey, hey, listen, I don't think this is a good idea and here's why. But flexibility is the key to air power. And flexibility is also key to having a balanced career and, and, and surviving uh, in the Air Force because being an officer is not just the job. It's a profession. It's a 24-7, 365 thing. And, and there are ups and downs associated with that. And so flexibility is what's going to uh, help you survive. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And so we haven't discussed your personal life too much. You're married, you're a mom, you've moved across country a couple of times now. So, you know, that having that flexibility to be successful on all levels, it's a requirement whether you want it to be or not. These are realities. And I do want to point out, because when I was coming up in the, I'm still coming up in the ranks, but when I was coming up in the ranks earlier on in my career, I had a hard time finding other female mentors that looked like me. And what I mean by that is I had a hard time finding female officers in my career field who are also happily married to civilian spouses. So my husband is a civilian. He will let me tell you that he's a slimy contractor, but he's a civilian. He has no military experience. He's never been in the military and he has a very successful uh, career. He's a, a PhD physicist and a software engineer. And I didn't think there were people like that in the Air Force. And there aren't many. We're definitely in the minority, but we are out there and it can be done. So we might feel like non-traditional spouse roles or what have you, but, but we make it work. Yeah. I'm, I'm grateful that, that you have that perspective. And I'm glad that the diversity of experience is there because it's one of the most important things we have to offer as a service. The diversity of the personnel that make up who we are is what makes us great. So I'm grateful to have people with different experiences because I'd get sick of just a whole lot of me's. I think I'm pretty great, but I'd get pretty sick of just a whole lot of me's. So with that, it's been a real pleasure. I really appreciate it. Reed, I really enjoyed that interview with Michelle. She is so well-spoken, such a great example of what an Air Force officer could and should be. And outside of that typical, what we think of as a Air Force officer career path in being a pilot and or leading airmen, but doing amazing things 
in this other side of the Air Force that we don't get to see very often. Yeah, absolutely. I knew she'd be a good interview. You know, I said this at the beginning. She's an outstanding human being and a fantastic officer. So, yeah, really grateful that Major Willett was able to join us for that. And something that I forgot to highlight in the intro that I want to bring out here is that when I was a recruiting officer for Air Force ROTC, this is one of those career fields that got brought up on a very regular basis with people coming in to explore the program or new cadets that were exploring the different options. At least where I was at Brigham Young University ROTC Detachment 855, there was a lot of interest in being an engineer for the Air Force. And I'm really excited to share this episode with those who are looking to come into the Air Force because, again, Michelle did a really great job of highlighting what this career field is and and how important it is to what we do in the Air Force. Yeah, because I think this one is a little bit in the background. I don't know a lot of people that think about this side of military service when they think about becoming an airman. So, Colin, what is the thing that kind of stood out to you that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I was really impressed by the fact that Michelle knew from a very early age of what it was that she wanted to do with her life, with her career. She really wanted to be an astronaut. She really wanted to be involved in space operations. And because she had that passion, she made the effort to go and find out everything that was needed in order to be successful in that particular career path. Obviously, it didn't work out the way that she had originally intended. She wanted to be an astronaut, but isn't now and recognizes that's not going to happen for her yet. I don't know. Things could still change. She's still young. But she mentioned that sometimes you need to decide whether you pursue the thing that you're passionate about or whether you should pursue the thing that you're good at. And I think that's something that we have talked about before, but not necessarily in this exact context. And I think it's worth revisiting again, that whether you're in school pursuing a bachelor's degree and becoming an officer in the Air Force through your accessions program, or whether you're talking about just your growth and development over the course of a career and a lifetime, do you focus on the things that you are passionate about? Or do you focus on the things that you are good at and continue to develop those particular skills? Oof, this is a really big life question for me. I think this is the tough stuff about being a grown-up. And you can think about this in so many different ways. And I think the answer is yes. I think it depends, right? Such an Intel guy answer, right? Oh, it depends. I'm I'm not going to draw a hard line because I think people are different. I think... In some situations, if someone has a passion, but maybe they're not as good at it, they can use that passion to overcome obstacles that are in their way to achieve greatness that you or I or the normal people can't. When I think about that, I think about like athletes. You watch the Olympics, for example, and they always do these human interest stories. And you're like, man, they overcame some incredible things to become the world's fastest or the world's whatever, the best of the best. And those stories seem universal, right? They overcome incredible difficulties. And you don't often see the human interest story of, oh, I was just born the best, even though we know those people are out there, but they're not really. Everybody has to work. On the flip side, I've been on the other side of that coin 
where I am beating my head against the wall and I can barely scrape by with a C. And as I, I described that in the episode, I was in that place. And when I started to follow and pursue what I was good at, I got much better at what I was good at than, than many of my peers. And it became something that I was passionate about. So I don't know. This is a really tough one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So let's circle back and think about becoming an Air Force officer. I think there's a difference between obstacles that you can't overcome and obstacles you can overcome with some effort. And, and so she describes, right, like she's not waverable because she's 4'11 and tiny. And you just could not find a way to make her fit in a cockpit. And so that's why she's not a pilot. Just to clarify real quick, get her to fit in a cockpit and do so safely. Yes. Because safety is of utmost concern. I don't think that there's any concern about her ability to perform well within the aircraft. But just because of her size, her anthropometry, the way she's built, it would not be safe for her to be a pilot. Yes. And we know that there's been some changes, but at the time when she was applying, not an option. You can't overcome physics. Like you can't add six inches to your height. That's You just can't do that. And so I don't think that's what we're talking about. We're talking about those other things that people pursue and pursue despite the challenges that they're facing. And yeah, it's a really tough one. And I think it really depends on the person. I think that's where good leadership can come in. And I know that's going to lead us into our next point. Yeah, before we get to that, we've been really emphasizing in the last few episodes and across our podcast, the importance of self-awareness. And here it is again, that importance of recognizing, are you up against an obstacle that is insurmountable no matter what you do because of genetics, because of policy, because of whatever, or is it something that you just need to put a little bit more effort into and maybe you need the help of a leader, which is where we want to go next in order to overcome that obstacle? Yeah, absolutely. And talk about self-aware, right? Michelle has this in spades. One of the most self-aware, yeah, the most introspective, constantly assessing self and better for it. And I am a better person and leader because I saw someone of her caliber doing mm -hmm. that so regularly and so well. So yeah, I think what we were just talking about, this how a leader can help you navigate this space, that leads me to the thing I, I really wanted to talk about. I loved how Michelle talked about being the flight test engineer and leading a room of engineers and pilots and talking to the pilot on the net in order to direct the test. And I think it might be a little bit easier for me, but like I envision a diminutive second lieutenant with massive headphones that fit on her very tiny head as she stands behind computer monitors that people might not even be able to see her behind, but she's directing the show. And she mentioned how that was not a vision she had for herself, but that she got good at it. And I just think that's amazing and awesome that a leader saw that she had that potential and he treated her like someone that she can become not like who she is and look at the growth and look at the confidence and look what the result is. I just, that is such a beautiful thing to think about the effect you can have on somebody 
And it just totally reblued me and wanted me to be, be a better leader as she described that. Yeah. And then also relating it back to passion versus what you're good at. It doesn't sound like that was something that she had a passion for, but somebody recognized that she had this capacity within her to be a leader, even among people that greatly outranked her both in experience and actual pay grade. And yet she had the ability to direct them toward achieving a very important objective, such as the development of the F-35. Yeah, which we can't overstate the importance of that weapon system. It, it is incredibly important. And to be the person who first tested weapons, first connect air-to-air refueling, all that stuff, that's a big deal. And having a leader being able to get you to that place, that's the impact you can have. So it's not just that you as a leader need to be self-aware for your own development. You need to be aware for the development of your people. And just as you said, if you are able to have that level of awareness, you can really achieve great things for yourself, but more importantly for the people around you on behalf of the Air Force and then for their own personal lives. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes these situations are going to be thrust upon us, right? Sometimes that's just the job. Right. You, can, you can be faced with a situation, you're like, man, this is not something I'm good at. This is not something I want to do. This is not something I have all the skills for. And the leader, director, commander, whoever is going to be like, that's the job. And you're forced into that growth. And I think that's something that I love about the Air Force. I feel like we're in that situation a little bit more often than perhaps would be the situation in the civilian world. Because the things we do are kind of unique. Yeah. I don't know how many other businesses out there call and drop bombs. Hopefully none. Hopefully none. So I think there's a lot of things that we do that are unique that are not in the skill set of things that you learn at college or learn at school. As a result, I think we get put in these situations where we're forced to grow. And I love that. I absolutely love that. And that vision of seeing Lieutenant then at the time, Willett, in the back of a room as a flight test engineer, I can see that because of the presence that she developed in that situation. It's just a really neat picture for me. And I hope we can convey that to the audience, the, the growth that happened there. And it was just a spectacular thing. Yeah, her attitude of growth is really important and is what has enabled her to get to this point where she is now Major Willett. And even though she didn't want to do OTS, she didn't want to be an exec twice. She didn't want to go to Edwards and be a developmental engineer for the Air Force. Through each of these different experiences, she ad admits up front that she didn't want to do these things. And yet she found a way to, as she said, bloom where she was planted. And then there were leaders along the way who said, yeah, you need to go do this next thing. I know you don't want to, but it's going to be good for you. So both her self-awareness and the leaders that were involved in the progression of her career have uh, resulted in this very powerful Air Force officer who is going to continue to go and do amazing things for our Air Force. Absolutely. And it's airmen. Yeah. And that's the job, Colin. And I think that's a really good place to leave it. That is the job. That is our mission. That is our objective is to build other leaders, to lead our airmen to accomplish the mission. And super grateful for Major Willett joining us on that interview. I, I really think she did a great job of not only outlining her career, the importance and caliber of 
who you can become as an Air Force officer. Anything else you want to cover before we wrap up today? Yeah, as always, thank you to our audience for listening to this week's episode. We encourage you to share it with others around you, especially if you know anybody that's interested in the developmental engineering career path, or maybe you know that there are some other officers already in the Air Force who would benefit from having a better understanding of the acquisitions and sustainment process of the equipment and materiel that we use. And then finally, we invite you to engage with us in the Heritage Room to share your thoughts with us about this episode, about the discussion around pursuing passion versus the things that you're good at, the development of yourself and other people. We want to hear your thoughts because that is also how we are going to continue to grow and develop together. That concludes this episode of Commission Ed.